You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Chris Nurnberger, a Clojure programmer with a background in writing C++ at NVIDIA and co-founder of TechAscent, a software consultancy in Boulder, Colorado. We get into his experiences making code run faster in the context of the Java Virtual Machine, or JVM for short, and the similarities and differences between that and trying to make C++ code faster, among several other topics. And now, making jitted code faster. All right, Chris, thanks for joining me. All right, it's great to be here. So you have done some performance optimization on the JVM, which is unfamiliar territory to me. I've done some in the browser and browser engines and dealing with the JIT and all that stuff. And then I've done some straight to machine code like LLVM, that type of really low level optimization. But I haven't done that space of it's compiled, it's JITted, but it's the JVM's JIT. It's not the browser's V8 or Firefox or something like that. So I'm kind of curious, what's that experience been like for you? What lessons have you learned for optimizing on the JVM that's different from any other experiences you've had optimizing elsewhere? Well, I have a lot of experience optimizing C++ and CUDA stuff. Okay. I worked on game engines for a while, and I worked at NVIDIA for a while on a few things. And we actually got into Clojure in 2008 at NVIDIA. Me and my partner, Harold, messed around with it, and we used it for scripting things here and there. But I came back to Clojure and was part of an AI-oriented startup named ThinkTopic. And in about 2014, and the language had changed dramatically. And I remember the first big system I wrote that needed to be fast was a deep learning engine called Cortex. And I remember writing it using the tricks I would have used in C++. (laughs) Okay. And so that meant a lot of macros, a lot of inlining code. Yeah, just code generation all over the place and trying to avoid virtual function calls and tight loops and this type of thing. And the biggest insight I had is, well, the first insight's obvious in retrospect. You're really writing fast Java or fast anything on the JVM means you're targeting hotspot. You really have to work with hotspot a lot and figure out what little things it's likely to optimize and little things it's not likely to optimize. And it has limited time to do its job. So it can't do an in-depth analysis of what you're doing. Right. I remember the same thing with V8. Yeah. I don't know how Hotspot works when it comes to loops, but I remember that V8 has a heuristic that it's like, until a loop runs, I think it was like 4,000 times, it won't actually try to start optimizing at all. Right. Is that similar in JVM? Very similar. Yeah, yeah. It's very similar. I have a little bit of experience writing fast stuff for V8, and I'd like to talk to you about that because it overlaps with one of your libraries. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So... Just out of curiosity, I started messing around with it. But in any case, what I found out, the most surprising thing I found out was how powerful Hotspot's inlining mechanisms are. And so you can have, as long as you write short functions and the underlying objects aren't changing a lot, and your Hotspot has a lot of ability to inline virtual function calls all the way into the loop itself, and they disappear from the profiler. Okay, so in my mind, when I'm thinking about inline, this is also the difference between my experience with different languages. But when I think about inlining in, let's say, like Rust or C or something like that, I think, well, the function call overhead is not very much. It's usually the main thing that's costly there is the opportunity cost of the optimization. Because once you've inlined, now new optimizations become on the table that weren't available when you were talking about a function that could get called in multiple places. But you mentioned virtual functions specifically. And I've heard things like virtual function calls have a lot of overhead, like performance overhead. But yeah, since I got into trying to make programs run faster, I haven't been using languages, or at least I haven't been using them in ways that use lots of virtual functions. So 
I'm curious, like, what is it about virtual functions that makes it, the overhead so much higher compared to like ordinary function call? Well, let's define our own virtual functions in C because everybody has to do at least that. And so if I have a struct, my first member of the struct is going to be a pointer to a bunch of function pointers. And each of those function pointers take the struct as its first argument, as their first argument. So a virtual function call means dereference that vtable, find that function pointer, call it with the first argument and the rest of the args, the this pointer and not. And what that does in a tight loop is it starts messing with your caches because that object is nowhere near your data, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're pulling all of a sudden, and especially not the function table, because the function table is declared in static memory, your data is dynamic memory running through the program. And so you start a virtual function call in most systems is considerably more expensive, and especially lots of little virtual function calls in a quick succession in a tight loop, because you just lose your cache coherency really quickly that way. I see. Okay. So if you have like one virtual function call, it's like, all right, well, we're going to have like one L1 cache miss at the beginning of the loop, but then that line's in there and that's fine. But if you have a bunch of them, now it's like, well, A, you're paying for a bunch more misses on the first pass of the loop, which can add up. And then B, a bunch of your L1 cache is now being eaten up by all these different disparate yep. B table references in the static part of your binary. Okay, got it. Right. And now remember that also, just when you write a lot of Java, you have some primitive elements but you often have a lot of small allocations in order to call the function in the first place. You maybe box a float. And when you start inlining a lot of those function calls, then the JVM's escape analysis starts taking effect. And so things that are getting boxed and unboxed really quickly and then forgotten stop getting boxed in the first place. Nice. And as you start moving to higher core machines, every time you touch the GC, the garbage collector, you should be thinking a little bit about that might be a global lock. And so if I'm on a four-core desktop, if I start allocating a bunch of RAM on the GC, that's probably not noticeable in a lot of cases because the JVM is optimized exactly for that situation. When I move to eight cores or 16 cores or 32 cores, some of those global locks and global memory references or global locks that you need to do GC safely in general start getting far more expensive. So the cost of a simple mutex rises dramatically with the number of cores because if you have four cores, each core can probably talk directly to every other core. And every other core is cache, because there is on-core cache. Yeah. And, but when I go to 16 or 32 or 64 cores, now there's an underlying bus. And so maybe only any two cores are connected to each other directly, but they have to then talk to a bus, which then transmit the signal, and then another core has to pick that up. And now your intercore communication costs rise dramatically. Interesting, yeah. This is why an NVIDIA GPU is structured such that you have some small number of very simple cores that share a cache, 16 or so, or maybe 32. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why they have this breakdown into warps and threads, and they have a multi-level breakdown. Okay, I I know very little about graphics programming, so (laughs) this is new to me. Okay, well, they did that. Basically, I might have a 1,000 cores on the chip are might have right. you know some power of two around a thousand cores on the chip but any only 16 cores are connected to each other to share cache i see and if i need to talk because the bus cost is expensive because the bus cost is expensive in video's world they just got rid of the buses within 16 cores you can talk to each other if you need to talk to another group of 16 cores you're then writing to global memory and back down all the way yourself as the program. Okay. <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> not cheap. Yeah. Not cheap at all, especially on a GPU. When I was at NVIDIA, this is around 2008, their head scientist published a talk. Unfortunately, it was in Silverlight. That was back in the days of Silverlight. Oh, no. Yeah, the like the Flash competitor. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the Microsoft alternative to Flash. That's right. He published the video in Silverlight, so I don't know if I can find it anymore. But he said one of the most insightful things I've ever heard about computing in general, for me at least. Wow. In that he said, and this tells you how hardware-oriented my mind is in general, but he said he basically made the point of like, do you know the similarity between a cell phone and a supercomputer? Because he thinks of our processors, he thinks of NVIDIA processors as supercomputers. He said, do you know the similarity between a cell phone and a supercomputer? And he said the fundamental properties are both power limited. Interesting. We can't get you twice as powerful of a cell phone with the same battery. And we definitely can't make you twice as powerful of a supercomputer because we don't want to build a nuclear power generation facility per computer. <laughs> right. <laughs> when the computers yeah. are starting to take megawatts of power each, you can't just double that. You just can't physically right. do it. He said, so the interesting question to ask at a computing level is, what takes power? What operations mm-hmm. take power? Right. And he said, it turns out if you study this, it's moving data onto the processor and out. You can do a lot of simple arithmetic and a lot of floating point arithmetic or whatever, but the second you need to write to RAM and back, you're using way more power than it took to actually compute the results. And that's also what, at least today, seems to be, this is, it's not just power, it's also performance in general. Mm-hmm. That's usually what's expensive, is not arithmetic. It's like the hierarchy in my mind is like, arithmetic is so cheap it's practically free most of the time. Yep. I mean, obviously there are exceptions. And then branch mispredictions are the first thing that's like, one branch misprediction is worth like 10x that many arithmetic mm-hmm. instructions or something like that. And then anything to do with memory is like another 10x that. <laughs> Cache misses, rather. Like anything where you Cache have to like move the data. Yeah. And as you rise to more cores, and of course, the GPU is like the most cores, and a big cloud machine is in the middle, and your desktop is small potatoes. As yeah. you rise to more cores, those numbers get extreme. More and more extreme as you go higher and higher. Yeah. So I look at all optimization, whether it's on hotspot or not, starting from that foundation. So I want to, whether I'm programming hotspot or not, I kind of want all the data contiguous if I can get it, or at least in chunks of contiguous data. And I want to do tight, fairly simple loops over chunks of contiguous data when I can. I totally agree. And this actually raises an interesting question, which I'm really curious to get your thoughts on. So in the Rock compiler, we do automatic reference counting. That's our automatic memory Mm -hmm. management system. And the way that it works is that whenever you have something that's heap allocated, like let's say a string, on that heap allocation, right before the first element of the heap allocation, that's where we store the reference count. So it's at like position negative one, kind of, so to speak. Like if you have like a you know list of things, like an array in memory, then it's like all the elements, and then right before the first one is the reference count. Now, what that means is, on the one hand, it's nice in that we don't have to store a separate pointer to the reference count. So that's savings, because it's our, we already have this pointer and we can just reuse it. The downside is that if you have things that are getting passed around and the references counts are getting incremented and decremented, but you're not actually looking at the contents of it very much, then it's really bad for cache because you're loading, these are not contiguous. They're right next to whatever their data is. But if you're not actually accessing that data, you're just passing the thing around. And that's why the reference counts getting incremented and decremented. Then it's really messing with your cache. So something that we talked about was, well, an, an alternative system that we could try is we could try putting all the reference counts for everything side by side. But then, of course, now we need to store a separate pointer to them in every single data structure. So like string needs on the stack needs like an extra pointer. Every single string needs that. 
But the upside would be if you are just passing lots of things around, and we do some stuff to statically allied reference counts, but sometimes you just have to do it. You know, it's we do as much yeah. as we can, but there's a limit. So then the theory would be maybe that extra overall total memory usage would be worth it just because the reference counts would have lower impact on cache. But then again, you also get the question of, well, now it depends on which references happen to be the ones getting incremented and decremented. Because if it turns out that even though they're side by side, bad luck, they happen to be like so far apart that they each need their own cache line anyway to be loaded, then you're no better off and your total memory usage is higher. Right. And what you were talking about with the virtual functions sounds like it has some things in common with that, where if you could put all the V tables side by side in one place, then the cost you were describing would, I would assume, go down. Mm-hmm. But with the same characteristics of it, not, not necessarily. Depends on if you happen to get a bunch of them in a row or not. And I'm curious, yep. you know, if there's any, ever been any exploration into like trying to make the V tables be side by side in memory relative to like where they're getting used and stuff like that. Is, like, is, is that something anyone's explored? Yes. We used to, in the days of MSVC6, we used to have control over the layout of the DLLs. I worked in Windows oh. in those days. Yeah, yeah. And so you would potentially, as a second pass, once your program was very carefully done, you would then lay out your DLL such that you could control an aspect of that. Oh, wow. And, you know, that kind of got broken because we had to start randomizing the address of things in memory because hackers would figure out where everything was and they right. would start figuring out where the DLL's base address was and changing the function pointers and the VRT B tables to what they wanted. Yeah, And so we broke a lot of those things at the time. This was years and years ago, but Microsoft well, yeah. added. And so did <laughs> yeah, GCP. Space and so everybody's been around for a long time now. <laughs> That's right. That broke all manner of those optimizations. Now, specifically about the reference counting, do you know, is that reference count always a write to memory? When you're incrementing it, yeah. If you know the object is thread local, so it's going to live and die in this local context of some sort, then could you just keep the reference count in a register? Yeah, there's definitely things like that we can potentially do. The concerns are more about like the case where we can't optimize our way out of doing the reference count, which, I mean, maybe it'll turn out that we find enough tricks that we can get rid of it. But so far, it seems like it's difficult to anticipate what percentage of the time those things are going to apply. And part of the concern here is like, what happens if you change your program a little bit and all of a sudden the performance gets way worse because some optimization that we were relying on stopped triggering and it turns out to be kind of brittle. So we're kind of trying to just look for ways to try to make the general case faster if we can. Yeah. What you just said is the downside of optimizing for hotspot or any sufficiently powerful optimizer is that <laughs> yeah. you upgrade versions and all of a sudden the optimizations are totally different and what you did is now not optimal right? or potentially not even close to optimal. I've often wished that there are ways to tell the JVM like, hey, this is going to run a whole lot. So when you load this, spend time on this function. Move this instantly to your like really, really optimized pool. And if people have taken that to another level. I noticed you had a quick sort comparison on your GitHub. Yes. And another level beyond looking at the JVM in that would be looking at different implementations of the JVM on that. So looking oh, at yeah. a GraalVM implementation. And mm-hmm. there's various people who've optimized various aspects. So GraalVM took some of those optimizations a bit further. It takes a lot longer. It doesn't run your code initially as fast. But it has a deeper optimization pipeline that will apply it. Can, for instance, do more advanced escape analysis on the things okay. that you're doing. And long-live server contexts, you really would like to tell Hotspot, like, hey, you really should go hard here. This is important. But then, again, it's also not that hard to just write a C++ library 
exactly how you want it and load it via C bindings into the JVM if you really care about a certain algorithm of one way or another. Yeah, well, it seems like that that works if your performance problem happens to be of a certain shape. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then if your performance problem is more sort of pervasive, like a pattern that you're using everywhere, then at that point it reduces to like, well, if you just rewrite all of your code in C++, then you can fix this. <laughs> Which point right. it's kind of like, well, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very distinct pattern when I write code that's very different than Java people or Clojure people. It's because I'm trying to shape the code in such a way that when I do want to optimize it, that those optimizations are quickly available. Yeah, so that is something that I really, really want to try to encourage in the like in the early days of the rock community in terms of style is basically like something I've observed is that people have different factors uh, around like what they consider to be good code or like you know idiomatic code or like you know good yep. coding style. And in a lot of cases, performance uh, and specifically like like not just how fast will this code run when I run it, but also how easy will it to be to optimize this code and make it run faster or if I need mm-hmm. to in the future is a very low consideration, at least today, right. culturally, like broadly among like web development, I would say. And I would love to try to change that. And I think like if we, since we have kind of a new community and like a new culture that's kind of just finding its footing, I really want to try to encourage that and try to find patterns so that basically what you just described, hopefully doesn't happen in the sense that like people who are trying to write code to be like fast, pretty fast as a baseline and then amenable to optimization in the future, if that turns out to be something that's too slow, that just is the style that everybody does. Yeah. But I'm kind of curious to learn a little bit more specifically, what are the differences that in your style that you think are helpful to performance long-term? Well, you have to have a few fast primitives. It has to be a very efficient operation to build an array, be it a primitive array or an object array. And I imagine Rock has that differentiation. So you have like an integer array versus integers are not reference counted. They're just four byte things on the CPU. We monomorphize. So if you have a like, we call them lists like Python does, but they're, they're arrays in memory, like dynamically sized arrays. And like, yeah, if you have a list of 64-bit integers, each one of them is taking up 64 bits in memory. That's it. <laughs> right. And there's a trade-off between, do I do an operation that produces a new list that's concrete? Or do I do enough operation that produces a virtualized list of some sort that potentially is lazy and non-caching? And this is actually a, an optimization I think is pretty specific to the JVM and its ability to eliminate vCalls. Interesting, okay. Clojure's core programming model from the very beginning is lazy caching thread safe. And so a sequence is a virtualized con cell in Lisp. So a sequence has a first and a next. So it has its value, which I would say just value and next. And value is an object and next is an implementation of iSeq. Mm-hmm. And so underneath assigning a member variable to the value, and it's using a lock before it generates the next thing or something like that. So that is a very safe programming model, especially for new people who don't want to get into the semantics of how a machine works in a lot of ways. It is not okay. a model that you can optimize in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's that, that, <laughs> it didn't sound like it, unless I'm misunderstanding something. No, 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 it's not, because every operation has to create a copy of all your data. You can't possibly not because if you don't know who's referenced some intermediate step of your optimization, you don't know if they've realized the data, and you don't know if upstream of the data there's a random integer call or something like that where if you realize the data again, you would get a different answer. So every step has to cache. You can't combine operations in meaningful ways if that's your programmatic model. Another step there, another programmatic model, and let's just talk about like mapping a function over an array. Okay. And so closures is lazy and caching. It's going to 
redo, basically return an implementation of iSeq of one form or another. Another programmatic model is lazy and non-caching, where you array is like a countable thing that's randomly addressable. Those are like the properties of an array. And then I can return you a new countable thing that's randomly addressable that when you get index Y, it just applies the operation to the array and returns the value at that point. And so that's not caching. It'll apply that operation every single time you get the index Y. And then there's concrete, where and concrete and greedy, or concrete and lazy, I guess. It could be either one. But basically, when you need the result, it will apply that operation to the array and return a new array. So those are like three different programmatic models. Lazy caching thread safe, lazy non-caching, and I would also say non-thread safe at this point, and then greedy, which is probably also doesn't matter if it's thread safe or not, because it's just going to do it every time you ask for it. So I'm guessing that greedy non-thread safe is the fastest. Not necessarily. It depends if you have a chain of operations. Like do one map and then do a filter and then do another map or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It really depends, especially in simple arithmetic. If I have a chain of operations all specialized to integers that I want to do, plus this, minus that, mod this, then it may be much faster to describe that in lazy non-caching ways and realize it all once at the end, potentially in parallel. Especially if your JIT will inline all those intermediate definitions into one loop at the end of the day. I'm very curious about this. We have talked about wanting to do this like deforestation optimization, which does what you just described, but kind of at compile time, where we're like, we see a map followed by a filter, followed by a whatever, and we mm-hmm. just say, okay, well, we know semantically what these things are doing. We can just combine them together. Like Haskell has this called like stream fusion. And something that I'm curious about is you mentioned things can be automatically parallelized. Like certainly map is the embarrassingly parallelizable <laughs> operation. Depends on the underlying source of data. Well, so if you just have like a flat array of things, and you're like, I want to map right. over this, then like you can do whatever that calculation is. But something I've always wondered about doing that automatically is it seems like it would be pretty easy to accidentally make your performance worse, depending on how many elements are in the thing, and then also depending on what are your other cores otherwise going to be doing. Is pulling things away from other cores to like do this map automatically potentially worse than just doing it all single-threaded, but then the other cores were already busy with other stuff, and it turns out that mm-hmm. the throughput of your overall system is better because you weren't automatically doing that. And this is something I kind of struggled with with Rock, because it's like, we definitely can do it. They're all, it's a pure functional language. They're 100% pure functions. We are absolutely certain that every single map that you do is like totally safe to parallelize, yeah. but should we automatically? Or is that actually going to make your performance worse accidentally? And I just don't have any experience using systems that have actually done that, like automatic parallelization. And I'm curious... What have you seen with that in practice? It really depends on the context. Are you writing a server that's doing a bunch of disparate things and you potentially don't want to overwhelm one area in one place with an operation in another? Or am I processing a gigabyte CSV or a 10 gigabyte CSV? It really kind of depends. You definitely can make the machine really unresponsive with careless use of threading, for sure. And with careless use of (laughs) GC, both. Sure. So is that something that the automatic systems have some awareness of? It's like you only turn it on if you're like, I know my problem is amenable to it, but you just turn it on globally and you say like, for this entire program run, do it? Or how does that work? I've never seen an automatic system really work. <laughs> when I've seen it work, it's because somebody spent a lot of time making it work. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so yeah, that, that was kind of like my fear is like, you know, oh, we could do this and it'll make for a cool demo and then it'll sound great and then you try it and it's just worse unless you do it. Unless you do the same kind of stuff that you're talking about where you're like, okay, I'm very aware of what optimizations this is going to do, so I'm going to try to dance around it and basically undo the benefit of it being automatic because you're like, well, what I want is explicit control and I can't get that because it's automatic, so I'm going to have to work around it. Right. There's a lot of analogies there. 
One analogy I have is Haskell's, back in the day, everybody had automatic GPU parallelization. And so you could declare a GPU array and you could type map X on a GPU array and it would automatically do it on the GPU. But having programmed CUDA like a lot in my life, I was like, yeah, that's great for demos, exactly as you said. But Uh number one, it is extremely hard to task out a GPU all the way. So it's really hard to get full occupancy of the kernel that you're running, meaning all cores are running effectively on the kernel. And number two, the first rule of GPU programming is interleaving, uploading data to computing results. And unless you've really carefully constructed a system of kernels together, that balance is very, even if you have, that balance is really hard. Like a lot of the AI tuning that people do is that, is like getting full Mm -hmm. occupancy and trying to upload while they're calculating results and and do their backprop while they're calculating the next batch or something like that. And so the automatic systems, I haven't seen one work well in a commercial or industrial context that well. And I think oftentimes, you know, there's a balance. There are times when the serial algorithm, it's more efficient to break up the data really early and run a bunch of very carefully constructed serial algorithms in their own thread context than it is for each tiny step to have its own thread context and do it as fast as possible. Yeah, that's my intuition, especially when it comes to server type things. It seems like there's one area where doing it automatically seems like kind of a guaranteed, but like kind of a no-brainer, kind of a win, which is async IO, where you're like, well, some other part of the system is going to be doing this work. We could have the CPU sit here and do nothing, or we could say, okay, go do something else. I don't know exactly what, but something else. You're free now, and then once the IO is done, then we'll pick up where we left off. Because the opportunity cost is like, well, it it literally can't be working on anything else until it gets that I.O. back that it's blocked on. So right, that one seems like a good win for automatic stuff. But yeah, beyond that, it seems like, well, it's not like those cores were definitely going to be sitting idle. If you have like a batch script, I could see that. Like if you're like, this is a script that's just going to run start to finish and kind of the intention or the understanding is that you're going to run it and like, either you're not going to be running anything else on the machine or maybe you could give it a flag on startup saying like, don't use any more than this many cores because I want to reserve, you know, these other cores for whatever. That seems like, okay, sure. Like now you know that there's no other parts of this program that it's going to be stepping on. But yeah, as soon as you get into things like servers or like GUIs or things like that, it's like those cores might be better used on a different problem than this one. And it's not just about the micro benchmark at that point. No, it's not. I think one interesting thing to consider there, one thing I spent a lot of time on is very rigorously defining what a parallelized reduction looks like. Okay. People like to call reductions, I think, left folds in the functional world. A right fold is adding numbers starting from the right-hand side of, the, of a long vector. Nobody does that. It's a left fold is a reduction. So let's just start there. In Haskell, it's the other way around. Because of laziness, everyone does right fold. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but Haskell's unusual in that regard. <laughs> So Haskell, they're lazy caching in Haskell. They have to be, or else you can't compute some of the answers they do in a finite amount of time. And that, they've done so much work making that paradigm efficient. And it's really amazing some of the clever things they've thought of. I thought that was interesting as an intellectual exercise. And it's amazing how much success Haskell has had because like a stated goal of Haskell is to be nothing more than an intellectual exercise if you kind of boil it down. (laughs) like They've fought a lot of pragmatic things. My buddy and I programmed a lot in F-sharp for a while. Okay, We got into F-sharp and we're using that. It, I don't know that we introduced a lot of languages at NVIDIA, but in our little area, we had all manner of languages that we were playing with. Clojure, cool. F-sharp, we played with Factor. Factor, oh man. That language 
is a head trip. It is, you are the <laughs> compiler and factor. You're literally manipulating the stack with very abstract dupe swap nip drop. It was like an example of the end <laughs> of a function that I don't remember what it did, but it was like those four things. And it was like, what just happened? You have to like run the stack analysis in your head to see kind of how it worked out. But it had factor, had metaprogramming. It had a really nice IDE that the guy built with OpenGL. That language was really fun to play with. I don't remember if this is still true, but at least back when I learned Perl, there was something similar where you explicitly called pop to pop arguments off the stack. Like at the top of yeah. every function, it was like pop, 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 you know, do pop this, call it that, yeah. pop that, call it the other thing. Yeah, you know, those languages are fun. And it's kind of similar, true old school Lisp. It's kind of like you're programming in pure Lambda calculus, where like <laughs> you're really the compiler in a lot of ways. There's like no abstraction at all at the base level. And especially at least, well, I guess obviously when you're writing macros, you're like, you're doing a data structure to data structure translation and you're thinking about like abstractly, what am I going to tell the compiler when I'm finished with this translation? Like it's a very interesting way to program a well, lot of things. And allows hygienic you. macros, right? Then it's like, right. oh, well, whatever was in scope at the call site, that's still in scope when you uh, uh-huh. <laughs> expand the macro. <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't have any firsthand experience with this, but I do remember reading about how the initial Lisp, it didn't have lexical closures yet. And so instead, essentially, the difference between lexical and dynamic binding really clicked for me when I saw an explanation of it that was, I mean, quite literally what was happening, where it's like, yeah, I mean, like a higher order function in original Lisp was literally just like, you're passing in the source code of the function, like a copy of the source code into the oh. other function. And then it's going to eval it at runtime. That's literally what it was doing. So yeah, like yeah. of course it didn't capture what was in scope when you defined it because it doesn't know. It just wrote down the source code of what you defined. It has no idea what was in scope when you defined it. It's just like, right. here was the source code. Here you go. Whatever's in scope at the call site, that's what we're gonna. That's that's how eval works. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. Right, and I think that is like the definition of raw lambda calculus. It's just substitution. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember, but F sharp was my closest thing I got to. I mean, I played with Haskell for like a week. But F sharp, uh-huh. we actually built programs in, and I wrote I wrote stuff for other people in, and that kind of thing. Cool. And I felt like F sharp was a really beautiful language that didn't get nearly the attention it deserved. Although I guess Jane Street Capital, I remember when they had big ads out for people who wanted to program F sharp. Really? Yeah, because was if this you like wanted... before they got into OCaml? Because they're they're I mean obviously like the most famous OCaml shop in the world. They have to be. Yeah. Well, F-sharp and OCaml are close cousins. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, st- I didn't know that they'd ever had an F-sharp period in their history. They did. They had uh, job listings for F-sharp people for a while. The most common thing I hear about F-sharp is that people who have tried it really like it and are really disappointed in how little love it gets from Microsoft relative to like how great of a language it is. I hear that really consistently. Seems like a shame. <laughs> yeah, it is a shame. It's a shame that Microsoft really kind of for a time just kind of destroyed the reputation among developers because .NET is a really good runtime. The .NET runtime has some important differences from the Java runtime that just edge of power in places that you just don't get with Java. And I've always wanted to port, like we have a big data analytics system that's equivalent to like Pandas or R's deployer that we wrote. And I've always wanted to port a lot of that to C Sharp, but man, that's so much work. I'm not too sure to the .NET runtime using Lisp, but in just the performance analysis sense of like all the little things that I studied to make it work really well in the JVM, I'd be interested to see how they carried over to the .NET runtime. I'd heard Rich Hickey talk about how 
uh, JVM is much more friendly to dynamic languages than CLR is because it's sort of designed to be dynamic at runtime, whereas CLR was, I guess, not. I heard him say that in the talk, but I don't actually know the differences. Like, I don't know what like specifically is meant by that. I don't know. Maybe you do. No, I guess what I'm more thinking about is how nicely in the .NET runtime you have ways to do foreign function interfaces. It's got a really mm. nice FFI system built right into it. I have a theory that back in the day, I remember being so irritated at Java because we were writing C++ every day, all day. And the people who were excited about Java were like, you can write your stuff in Java and it's not faster now, but there will be a day when it will be much faster than C++. Faster? Yeah, because it can do runtime analysis of your programming oh, data right, and all right, this right. kind of stuff. And 20 years later, we're still waiting for that, you know? Right. I, yeah, I forgot about that. Because people were saying, I definitely remember hearing about this in the 90s, about there was this, let's now call it a hypothesis, although I remember people being a lot more confident in this back then, but the hypothesis was that because the running program has strictly more information than what's available at compile time, that an optimizer at runtime can use that to produce a running program that is now faster than what you could get if you just did static optimizations. And yeah, like 20 years later, Everybody who wants maximum performance just does static optimizations and doesn't use a JIT. Right, at least for the kernels that (laughs) need to be fast. Exactly. (laughs) And the other thing that I remember is they had a big push for pure Java. Java, when it came out, in my opinion, had a really poor foreign function. There was none. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. system load library, but you couldn't say find a function in this library. They had to implement a JNI hook in their library themselves, and it would search for that and load it from there. Oh, wow. That is backwards. And they basically had this attitude where the best thing for everybody to do is to rewrite everything they do in Java. And it'll be pure Java, TM, and that's how you should write your code. And Mm -hmm. that was just a bad design decision. Every language that has done that, I just really find issue with that. Like, why would you throw away 90% of the world's best software or force people to write bindings to it in some awkward way? It just doesn't make any sense. Like, modern languages, C Sharp, Haskell, Python... They have really nice ways of calling into shared libraries and older C systems. And Java just walked away from that. And I think my theory is that's what killed Java in the embedded world. One of the things that did. Because embedded Java has pretty good performance if you compare it against potentially embedded Python or any of those other things. But it has such a poor C interface. And in the embedded world, all you're doing is the C bindings. Like all you're doing is calling little bits of C code from a very small amount of script. Interesting. I'm curious to learn more about that. So in the embedded world, what does your code base look like? Let's say that you were using both C and also some other language. How would those interact? I'm kind of curious about this because this is something I've wondered about for Rock. Is like, could it be useful in the embedded world? And if so, how? A lot of times you'll have a Lua interpreter because Lua is so lightweight. Oh, really? Or you'll have a Python. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll embed your C into the Lua in some one way or another and write a little bit of Lua code that controls how the various pieces fit together. Similar to Python, where you'll write Python extensions or something like that, which they made really easy to do through Boost CPP. So the way that Rock is designed is that if you want to have a code base that's a mix of C and Rock, the way it works is it's always C calling Rock. And you can have a Rock function that calls a C function, but it has to be treated as I.O. because it's potentially impure, among other reasons. Right. So it's not like you can, for example, in the middle of a rock function, just be like, hey, I just want to call this C like arithmetic function and right. just do that and pretend it's a pure function. You can't do that, but you can set it up so that you can cause some C code to get run. 
but the reverse is much more straightforward. Like if you're like C and I want to call a rock function, it's like, go knock yourself out. You just call it. It's no problem. And so if what you're talking about is like, I have this embedded code base that's like, C is sort of doing the driving. And then at mm-hmm. some point, I call a rock function to run some script or whatever. Rock is very well set up for that. But I've always kind of assumed that in the embedded world, just the memory constraints and things like that are like, you just can't use an automatically memory managed language. So I'm actually really surprised that people are using Lua and Python for scripting in embedded systems. Oh yeah, all the time. Wow, okay. Well, you know, you said Python's also reference counted. Yeah. And I don't know if Lua is or not. I'm not sure, but it might be just stop the world GC, a simple GC on top of Lua. I'm not sure. Uh But one thing I've noticed about Python is... If you're designing a data structure that might have circular references, that has a much more sophisticated C interface than a simple exposing a simple thing to Python. Ah, so we don't have that problem because you cannot define cyclic data in Rock. We solve that at the language design level. <laughs> Interesting. Because there's no mutation. It's not expressible. Oh, I see. Okay. I should say you can't express mutation. So I don't know if you know this about Rock. So we do opportunistic mutation, which is basically mm-hmm. if you have like list.set, which is like set this element n at you know this index to be this value. Our quote unquote lists are not linked lists. They're they're like flat C vectors, basically, is what they are. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, we're not actually cloning the thing, or at least not normally. What we do is we look at the reference count. If the reference counts one, we just mutate it in place. And otherwise we clone it and return you the clone. So semantically. The way your code looks, it's you have this guarantee that every time you're always getting a quote-unquote immutable value. But what's happening right. behind the scenes is that in the common case, we're not doing a lot of cloning and we're not doing node sharing either. What we're doing is just like, well, it turns out that, yeah, this is semantically immutable, but you're the only one looking at it. So nobody's right. going to notice if we just mutate it <laughs> and hand it back to you. But it's still impossible to create reference cycles because we don't have like a mutate in place thing you can just ask for. Okay, that makes sense. Got it. Going on to the mutation pathway. So what Clojure has, which I think is a good middle ground, is you can say something's transient. So I can have a data structure, and I can say it's transient, and then my mutations will be applied to the same data structure over and over again without creating a new one, necessarily. Sometimes you do get a new one back, but that's because the data structure needed to switch forms because you've done something to it. Mm -hmm. But separating your algorithms and being able to say, hey, I have a block of really heavy mutation, on these data structures, and then I will be done before I pass them back to the rest of your program, I think is a sane way. And that actually moves almost into transactional programming, where I want to say, begin transaction on these four data structures, and (laughs) I do a bunch of work, and then I end the transaction and out pops the four data structures mutated. I definitely like to think of what we're trying out as a hypothesis. Like The hypothesis is that you can write something in what just feels like a normal pure functional style, and it's just going to work out ordinarily that you're just going to be passing around things that happen to ha- you know be unique. And so this optimization applies all the time. My basis for that hypothesis is that this is basically what happens in Rust, except that if you deviate from it, the compiler yells at you. But because of that, when I look at you know my Rust code, it's like, yeah, we're just passing around a bunch of unique things all over the place. And then like it's compiler-enforced, but if it wasn't compiler-enforced, I think my code would look pretty architecturally similar, I guess. And right. it would just happen and be fine. And if you did have some performance problems where something is getting cloned unexpectedly, hopefully, again, it's a hypothesis, but hopefully it's like pretty easy to fix because it's only happening in a couple places and you can kind of like tell where those clones happen through. We don't have tools to analyze this yet, but it's not hard to imagine how we could create things like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, we don't know for sure. Like we have good reasons to think this is worth trying, 
but we won't know until there's big rock programs and we just see how things go in practice. But if it works out, it's obviously like really great because then we just get that performance benefit all over the place. But then you also get all of the semantic benefits of this pure functional style. That's the hope. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Have you read, I forget the gentleman's name. His first name is Chris, but he's got a functional data structures book. Oh, Chris Okasaki? Yes. I have not read it. I own it. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's one of those books where like a lot of people own it and they haven't read all of it. Like I've read some yeah. of it. But that is definitely another approach. Is basically like node sharing, right? Do a lot of stuff where cloning actually involves sharing a lot of stuff with your previous data structure. My concern with that is that algorithmically, that's obviously better than doing a full clone for sure. Mm-hmm. But you do introduce a lot of pointer chasing when you're doing that. And Mm -hmm. so I think we can do a lot better by having dense arrays that are opportunistically mutated in place compared to having lots and lots of pointers so that we can do node sharing. But again, it's a hypothesis. We'll see. (laughs) I have this joke that I make with my buddy that there's only one functional data structure and it's a tree. And so if if you... (laughs) That's it. That's the only one possible. And so all hash maps that are functional are trees in some level or another. Clojure's persistent vector is... It's more like a chunked vector but you could see it as a very flat tree. Yeah, it's a relaxed rate expiry tree, right? Uh, which? which Closure's vector, I guess? Closure's vector is a sequence of arrays that are 32 elements in length. Right, I, I think that's the term for that is like relaxed rate expiry tree, or I like to think of it as ribbit. <laughs> kind of, oh, but, interesting. I just think of it as a yeah. chunk. It's like you have 32-bit chunks and you have Y number of those. and So your indexing is flat. I think the 32-bit is the radix part. Got it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, Closure's hash map are a little bit more interesting. That's considered a bitmap trie. Oh, is that how you pronounce that? I always pronounce it tri, but I have no idea. Is it trie? My pronunciation is horrible on lots of things. It might be tri. Okay. I mean, but that's already a word. So like, what the hell? It's already a word. It doesn't, (laughs) it's not phonetic. So it's a little harder to Google. But the way it works is 32 is 2 to the 5. So you have 5 bits sections of your hash code. And you initially look at the lowest 5 bits of the hash code. And that tells you where it goes in the root array, logically. Uh And then if you need more than that, if you start having collisions in the root, then you start looking at the next five bits. And that tells you where it would go under the root in the 32 potential places. tells you where it would go under the root. And so that is another tree-shaped form. And I've experimented a lot with performance analysis of that versus just a flat hash map where you clone the array when you need to. But you don't clone all the nodes within the array. You don't clone the leaves. So the storage mechanism is cloned, but not each leaf. And that allows me to do structural sharing. And I've gotten pretty good performance. And that actually brings me to your data structure library in JavaScript. Oh, seamless immutable? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was not a performance-oriented project. Let me just say that. (laughs) Well, it's really interesting. And... You know a lot more about JavaScript than I did, but I wrote a little bit of my functional flat hash map in JavaScript and tested it lightly. And it performs really well, like compared to the JS capital MAP map or due to uh-huh. compared to Clojure's immutable data structure hierarchy. Cool. I just thought that was my one foray into JavaScript was I wrote enough of our data analytics system that you could write some of the things that we did in Clojure script, which is Clojure compiled to JavaScript. And it's interesting because ClojureScript and Elm are very sibling languages, I would say. Interesting. They're both functional at the core. Like pure ClojureScript is functional at the core. 
Elm is functional and written for JavaScript from the ground up, so it's got some features that we can't easily do in ClojureScript, such as the binary size of the downloads. Oh, sure. For ClojureScript, because the way that the Clojure core libraries are written, they're written on atoms that are based on other atoms. If you look at the dependency analysis of Clojure core, a lot of things are linked to each other. So when you compile any of Clojure core in JavaScript, you get almost all of Clojure core in JavaScript. So our ability to like do any sort of tree shaking there is not super high. Just mm-hmm. do the implementation style. But it, we've had a lot of success with ClojureScript over the years because number one, it allows us to not switch languages. Although there are differences between Clojure and ClojureScript. But in general, if you want to stick to a subset of Clojure, you cannot switch languages when you go to ClojureScript. But we have the same live updating and we have a wrapper on Reframe called Reagent that makes Reframe much more functional. And that wrapper is faster than a lot of Reframe programs because of the same things you note in Seamless.js where we can use just object identity in a lot of places because if you change something, you got a new object or you didn't change it. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of advantages to the front end of being functional, in my opinion. More advantages in the front end in a lot of ways than the back end. The disadvantage being, in my experience, that teaching new people functional programming is just out and out harder than teaching them imperative programming. And a lot of JS people are new. I'd be really curious to see a comparison of teaching people who don't know any programming, like teaching them what I would consider to be an easy-to-learn functional language like Elm versus teaching Mm -hmm. them an easy-to-learn imperative language like I'm guessing Python, maybe? Yeah. Because I'm skeptical that the advantage is is innate as opposed to just like everybody is taught imperative first. And so then, of course, it's easier for them to pick up a new imperative language than a new functional language because the new imperative language is more similar to something they already know. <laughs> yeah. But if you're starting from a blank slate, is that still true? And I would be skeptical of that, but I also don't have any data one way or the other. I really don't either. I know that MIT switched from teaching the structure interpretation of computer programming in Lisp to teaching a similar thing or teaching something else in Python. Yeah. What I read that was mainly just an industry concern. They're like, when people graduate, they want to know Python and not scheme. <laughs> right. It very well could be. I think, in my experience, it depends on the mindset of the person. An imperative language works like things do in physical world. Like, I have a box, I can put something in the box, I can take something out of the box, and it's the same box, and <laughs> just what's in it differs. You know, like, and that has a real physical analogy to it. And there is no physical analogy to functional programming. And I don't think, anyway. I'm uh, not sure. Well, there's definitely an analogy of like an assembly line where you like hand something like each step at a time. Ah. Like, at this step, we're going to do this. At this step, we're going to do that. But also, I think like in math, you have like, let's add these two things, then we get an answer. And mm-hmm. you've got that concept in both imperative and functional programming. The difference is in functional programming, you don't have the additional other thing. Or at least mm-hmm. not like pure functional programming. It's all just like, I have these couple of inputs and then I have an output. And right. then we're just going to keep doing that a bunch. But yeah, I mean, there's so many different variables to like what's someone's first programming experience that I think it's hard to say or hard to anticipate like what it would be. But I think there's good reason to believe that either one could be easier. Like, I could make an argument that functional is easier. Someone else could make an argument that imperative is easier for beginners. But really, at the end of the day, I don't know of anyone who's like taken a really serious attempt to try to answer that question and like a rigorous study of it. So at the end of the day, we're all just kind of speculating on that question. <laughs> well, like so many things in programming, like typed versus untyped. I mean, just the religious wars are abound in programming. And that's because partly people have a strong affinity to what they're drawn to and people have different 
preferences. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> but also partly because the studies have been poor and it's an innately hard thing to study. It's definitely innately hard to study. Yeah, because I mean, there's just so many different variables. It's really hard to isolate just one thing without getting lots of confounding stuff in there. Yeah, it's very hard. And the way people construct programs and what leads to an easily maintainable program and how important is it that this program is easily maintainable over time, those are all very different questions. Yeah, right. I was talking to somebody about data science and stuff like that. And it's like, what do you mean maintainability? Once I get my answer, oh, this gosh. is all go, all this code's going to the trash. <laughs> I'm just trying right. to like explore and solve some concrete problem. And once I've got the solution, like I'm yep. not going to revisit this code. Well, and kind of as you might, might assume, our data analytics system is geared towards functional data science. And it definitely attracts some number of people. Typically, if they're coming from another language, they're experienced enough to be really sick of their notebooks being broken all the time in the other language. It'd be sure. a good example. Yeah, Pandas is horrible for this because the Pandas operations are in place mutable by default. Sometimes they have an option to create new things. Often they don't, and you have to copy. But if you copy, your memory overhead is going up. And so you're, we have a joke. It's like, you're either incorrect or your memory overhead is huge, and you don't know which one until you tried <laughs> when you're doing the notebook. <laughs> so I believe that. But at the same time, it also seems like there's this massive Python monoculture, maybe even rivaling the monoculture of JavaScript or JavaScript dialects like TypeScript in the browser in the data science world. It seems very, very difficult to make a dent in that if you're trying to make a language that has better properties than Python does for notebooks mm -hmm. or whatever else. But it still seems very difficult to break into that. Well, and I would say it is. That's for sure true. A lot of the reason that Python won is because their C bindings are so easy to use. And so the people writing the big AI systems just use Boost CPP and they're done and they bind to Python, which uh -huh. I have issues with that too, because basically they then want to bind to usually R and they rewrite all their bindings in R. And then they want to bind potentially to Julia or the JVM. They rewrite all their bindings in those very specific things where they'd be a lot better off putting a very clean C interface over their thing and then generically being able to bind to them from lots of different languages. Hmm. And I've seen that happen over and over and over again. The Arrow people did it, and that's just recent. You see it over and over again. It's like, yep, you're generating a lot of work because you're redoing a significant portion of your bindings because you're not very good at defining C interfaces. And you're just started with Boost CPP, so you think that everything should be bound like that, where you could have one <laughs> library with a good interface on it, and then all the other languages could just dynamically bind to your C library and query it for its version and its capabilities, and off you go. And that's how the graphics programming people have done it forever. That's how OpenGL works. That's how CUDA works. That's how all these system libraries work. At the end of the day, when I want to use a C-based system, I want it tailored towards the machine I'm on. That speaks to a, a library that's available on the system itself that I can then bind to dynamically and query for what I need from it. And I can't tell you how many times our CUDA bindings broke for zero reason. It wasn't due to a function I was using. It's because a new version came out and the binding we used, a Java CUDA binding, would only bound every single function in a hard way. It did no dynamic lookups whatsoever. So the binding level would break with a C error if anything of the underlying library broke. And it just drove me crazy because that's going back in time. Way back in the day, that's how programming was all the time, and people were breaking each other's stuff all the time. And that creates like uh -huh. a large dependency matrix. It creates an n-dimensional dependency matrix. Not only am I dependent on the version of the base library CUDA, I'm dependent on the version of Java CPP's CUDA, and that's two dimensions. And in Scala, we have a third dimension, which is the version of Scala that you're dependent on. So now I'm dependent on Scala version Y, WebX, underlying C system Y, 
And everybody's stuff is just breaking all the time. And the reason that we have dynamic binding is to be able to handle some of these differences in code and not have to write a new version of our thing every time a new version of something else comes out, as long as we're not using the new features. The flip side of dynamic binding, though, is like, this is something that we're wrestling with. We're trying to make the rock compiler itself as static as possible, which unfortunately is non-trivial because some of our like Rust dependencies rely on dynamic libraries. And Well, like a thing that'll happen is somebody will just get a new thing in our Zulip chat and somebody's like, hey, I tried to install rock on Fedora, whatever version. And like, I'm getting this warning about this error, you know, this library not being available. And it's like, oh, well, it's, it's there on Ubuntu and it's there on this and that, but it's not there on Fedora. Okay, well, how do we diagnose that? And for distribution, it's very frustrating when it's like, I just want to build this thing and just give it to people and have it just work on their system. But because things have like dynamic dependencies, then we just run into all these problems with, well, this is available on that system, but not the right version or something like that. Yeah. And it really makes things hard. You'd rather compile all those into the rock distribution itself potentially, and have a fat binary. Absolutely, yeah. Be like, it's a bigger download, but like, they don't care. Right. What they care about is like, I can't run my thing. (laughs) There's definitely an argument for that. I thought it was interesting when people started going to these Docker images, or Go will make a really fat binary for you. And I think there are ways in C where you can actually pull the dynamic library implementation into your own shared library, at least on some systems. The JVM has that in Growl native. Growl can pull things in and you can compile things into the Growl native executable that you're then sending out to the world. I can understand that if you want it to be really good and you only want a dependency on the C level interface, like the C system library or something like that, I think there's a reason there. But then your software is not going to be tailored towards the CPU and memory architecture of your platform. True. And if it's not going to be tailored towards the CPU and memory architecture of your platform, why not just write it to the, in the higher level language to begin with? <laughs> Well, I guess you could, I mean, in theory, you could do a build for each of those, right? You could say like, hey, download Rust or whatever for your CPU and everything else. I don't know if people actually do that, but you could in principle. I think in some instances they do. It kind of depends on how speed-oriented you are. A lot of the Fourier transform libraries will do a dynamic compilation step upon installation or even upon boot up. That's interesting. I've heard about it at the start of the program. Like you do some sort of detection yeah. for like SIMD capabilities or something like that. Yeah, and CUDA lets you do that. Like the CUDA's, I forgot the name of it, but it's Deep Learning Library, C-U-D-N, C-U-D-D, I don't remember. But CUDA's Deep Learning Library, you can run little perf tests on various things, then configure your pipeline based off the results of those mm. perf tests. I mean, that seems like a reasonable approach to me in the sense that like as long as those tests are fast enough, then... yeah. Well, there's the usual argument about like binary size. You know, it has to get bigger right. to support both of the instructions in there. Right. But also in CUDA, you're compiling for that card. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. You can the card's driver PTX, and then it compiles into something that's specific to that card right there. So you, you always have a dynamic compilation step. Interesting. On installation, you always have some compilation of the thing. I think you can save the mm-hmm. object files if you want to. I don't remember exactly. But anyway... I'm a big fan of dynamic binding to C libraries for that reason is that I've had a lot of things break for no reason when they're not dynamically bound, but then you've had a lot of things <laughs> break for no reason when they are, essentially. <laughs> yeah. You know, the binary would run on the system if the library was compiled for it. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's easy to see the appeal of having everything in one language. <laughs> yeah. If you can, because then all these problems don't happen anymore. Yeah, or at least have it defined in some symbolic way that can be compiled as needed for a new platform. Yeah. A while ago, we were talking about reduction and what's the shape of a parallelized reduction. 
Mm-hmm. And that actually has a pretty simple shape. But the way I kind of attacked it was from the perspective that assume that your mechanism for doing the reduction has thread contexts. So it's going to have little context. And basically, it's the same as the map reduce kind of thing, where we're going to launch this reduction on in threads. Each thread then needs to figure out what the initial condition of the reduction is going to be. And then it's going to run the actual reduction itself. And then we're going to have to merge the results back. And that has a certain type signature, right? So your init function mm-hmm. returns your accumulator and your reducer takes a value and transforms it into an accumulator in like the type system. And then your merge function is accumulator to accumulator to a new accumulator. And oftentimes mm-hmm. you'll have a finalize that takes the accumulator and produces your actual result. And so you kind of have a four-step thing for a parallelized reduction. And we can break that into two segments where we may have an array or something that's randomly addressable where I know each thread is going to go over Y things or I can control that very concretely. But I also might want to reduce over something that has a more generic interface and Java has a splitterator for that. So if I want to reduce over... Splitterator? Yeah, (laughs) it's like an iterator, but it has the ability to split into two other iterators. I just say, okay. Only Java defined it incorrectly in that the splitterator mutates itself and potentially returns also another splitterator, which drives me crazy. I love the name, though. (laughs) It's really fun. (laughs) It it is really fun, but that allows you to parallelize your operation over things that have a rough number of things. So the uh, buckets of a hash table would be a good example. Like, I know my hash table base storage is big, 4,000 some or other, but I don't know exactly where all the buckets are, but I can split that address space into two and then I have two iterators, and they will just have to go through each subsection of that base storage until they hit a bucket, and then they can return it. So I split however many threads I have. I can take the login of that and split that many times, and then off we go, and I can parallelize my iteration over the hash table, gotcha. potentially returning a new one. And so part of my data structure work has been really fast ways to, for instance, union two hash tables. Because mm. depending on how many result and producing a big hash table is really common in Clojure and in just generalized data analytics. It's very often we want to do an aggregation by bucket of some sort, where I have a data set and I want to basically group by a one function, and each grouping I want to aggregate by another set of functions and produce like a new data set per bucket, per key in the hash table, or at least a new row per key in the hash table. And so in that case, I have a choice where I can produce a hash table in each thread context and then union them together. Or I can use a concurrent hash table of some sort that makes it safe to do that per bucket operation. And Java has a really sophisticated one to do the concurrent one. And so hash tables in Java have a compute at kind of facility where I can say like, compute at this key, this answer. And that compute function takes the current value and the new thing and replaces the current value, which has a similar shape as our reduction function that we were talking about. And then I can also say, and it'll do that all in a thread-safe manner. And the Java concurrent hash tables are lockless. I've heard that, yeah. And so it's really nice, and it's very performant. Like, I would put the Java concurrent hash table in that sort of situation where I'm doing a big, complex aggregation where I'm going to result in a hash table with a ton of keys. I'll put them against anything. Because at that point, a lockless implementation of the hash table dominates everything else. Hmm. So unless you have a good lockless implementation, you're nowhere in in the realm. You're toast, yeah. But, yeah, you're toast. But it could be, depending on how many keys the result's going to have, it could be just faster just to manipulate a hash table in each thread context and union them all at the end with a union operation that has the merge function in it per values. 
And so I did a lot of research into like, how fast can you make those union operations? Because we use them all over the place in our data analytics system, as well as a generic way to kind of parallelize over various things. But usually with the data analytics, we have a batch of data. So it's not really a matter of, it's an easy parallelization. You just parallelize the index space and operate over that. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. So the Ray programming guy that you had on here earlier, he basically went into this. He was talking about how do you process a CSV? And he said, well, we really want to take the CSV and we want to make it a set of columns and not a set of rows. Right. I remember that. Yeah. And generically, what I will say is that all I also think you should process in columns in general. There are a few operations that are faster row-wise, but the majority of things you do in data processing are faster column-wise. Mm-hmm. And so our data system is column major, just like Pandas or Deployer or lots of other things. Spark is row major. And the Spark guys will say like, well, you can store your data however you want, but it's like, yeah, but every processing function people provide, they get a row. So yes, I can store the data in column major, but then you're breaking all that by only letting me specify operations in row major form. Mm -hmm. And the thing about row major versus column major is heterogeneous data in row major becomes homogeneous data in column major. So if a row is a string, a float, an int, and another string, that's heterogeneous. But if I flip that to column major, I have a column of strings, a column of ints, a column of floats, Mm. and a column of strings. And so then I can store my data, at least in the JVM, where we can't define structs to be value-oriented. In that case, you couldn't anywhere, because you have strings, which aren't a value type. But in C-sharp, I could define structs to be int and floats could be in the same struct, and I can say that's a struct type, which means it can be stored on the stack or it's contiguous in memory. In JVM, we can't do any of that. But it doesn't matter because the best way to deal with it is to put it in the column major form and operate on the columns in a lot of cases, the majority of them. So I think that one thing to note that he didn't say, especially there, is that heterogeneous data becomes homogeneous in column major form, which is why in those array languages you switch to column major form because your arrays are homogeneous types and that's what you have. You don't have arrays of heterogeneous types. The analogy to... Other forms of programming is you have structive arrays, but you don't have arrays of structs. Right, right. That's just how things break down in dynamic languages very often, because almost all dynamic languages have a way that you can allocate a contiguous array of ints, for instance, but they don't all let you define a struct type. So all those sort of concepts and that parallelized reduction and that grouping all get boiled together into our data analytics system, which... Obviously, I'm really proud of. And that's what I work on the majority of my time. Although I've recently started staring at the Clojure compiler a lot. But that's not for a concrete need. We don't have a problem with the Clojure compiler. It works fine. It's just I've worked with Clojure since 2008 off and on. And there's aspects of the compiler where I've always been like, that feels like that could be different or faster. But so far, I've found that it's really, really hard to make it much faster. That's impressive. Nice. <laughs> it's really hard. Well, it's, they've had a long time to do it. Is that because it's already so well-optimized that there's just not much more room for improvement, or rather because the constraints are such that you would like to be able to make it faster, but it's not possible without breaking something else or something like that? The base programmatic model that is in the compiler is one that is innately difficult to optimize, but it allows the compiler to be written in a very condensed form that, in my opinion, is fairly easy to understand. I see. Okay. So there's your trade-off. And in Clojure, yeah. you can just say compile all my stuff and then I'll run it compiled. You can AOT everything and then just run oh, it from I didn't the know AOT. That. Yeah. And then you're concerned with like, okay, how much time does it take to actually run the language model on the JVM? And the language model 
is dynamic enough that the JVM, your startup times are are noticeable, hundreds of milliseconds for the data analytics system, for instance. But the dynamic startup times, like when I start a REPL, then we're talking seconds, like two or three seconds to load the data system on my Mac or five or six on my Intel, which is getting in the range of like kind of annoying when you're starting up in REPLs quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, your programmatic model, again, that lazy thread safe caching programmatic model is very easy to reason about, but there aren't threads in the compiler. Clojure's compiler is single threaded, so it's unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's unnecessary for it to be that. There's a lot of things like that that I've seen. And what I've kind of figured out is that Rich was writing the compiler as he was developing the language. And he wrote the compiler in terms of the language in a lot of ways. And that allowed him to verify that his thoughts around the language were accurate and it allowed him to port that compiler from .NET to Java fairly quickly. I see. Whereas if you knew if my job is to write a Java compiler of Clojure, you wouldn't write it like this. It would just look different because if your job is to go to point A and B as fast as possible, that's a different job than porting from .NET to writing something that's easy to port to various architectures. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I see my job as like, Rock compiler is supposed to run on different operating systems, but it's all just going to go down to machine code. And my main job is to make sure that it works well and is fast. <laughs> and like, yeah. How much do you get into LLVM bytecode? Oh, I mean, like debugging stuff comes up all the time. Like we actually have a CLI flag for the Rock compiler, which maybe someday we won't anymore. Hopefully, it won't be necessary. But like you can just ask it to spit out the LLVM bytecode, and then you just yeah, look stare at, like, at it. The .LL files, yeah. I really enjoyed learning LLVM bytecode. I wrote all the way to the metal compiler for Lisp at one time, at least to LLVM bytecode for Lisp. And I was trying to add C++'s template system to Lisp so I could say specialize this function such that you know arg A is a float or you know that this template parameter type is Y or something like that. I really enjoyed specifically looking at LLVM's bytecode because I thought SSA, that structural single assignment form, even though it has some noise in it for loops, I forgot that they have some Latin variable you have to use to make a loop. But anyway, I just thought that was a cool... Yeah, the fee nodes. Yeah, it's for conditionals, yeah. Yep. I thought that was a cool way of describing assembly, and I'd never seen it done that way. And I really think that was when I was really heavily into believing the whole world should go to functional programming. Mm. And it was fun because I was having arguments on internal CUDA mailing lists that you need to go functional for CUDA. And the guys who were doing the compilers were not sure that they could get good performance out of any functional sign. Even if LLVM bytecodes is SSA, LLVM is not the fastest compiler for assembly out there Uh at the end of the day. GCC still beats it, or did. I don't know. I haven't looked at that stuff closely in a long time. But I do like LLVM's SSA form. And I think that's a smart way of describing any assembly because the NIT handles mapping all that assembly to registers and that's a difficult job for your head. Yeah, we do have a separate backend that's not LLVM that just goes straight to machine code. But at least today, we're like very, very dumb about how we do register wrapping. It's just like we basically just put everything on the stack. But that's just for development builds anyways. Yeah. At some point, we should move to like more of an 80-20 thing where it's like we do a reasonable job with the registers but not optimized. But we don't even have that right now. It's just like just keep everything on the stack, do lots of loads that are not necessary. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, but it generates the code very fast. Is that why? Oh, yeah, because LLVM is really slow at generating. Even if you turn off all the optimizations, it's very slow at generating the code. The oh, I didn't code. know that. Comparatively, yeah. I guess. It's like 
that plus linking put together are like just dominate everything else in our compile times. It's just waiting for LLVM to do its thing. Like all the type checking and parsing and everything else is just a drop in the bucket compared to LLVM and linking. I got it. So then you're not incentivized to make most of your system in that sense real fast because if LLVM is going to consume the majority of the time, who cares? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the other way I would say it is it's more like we have targets where we want compile times to feel instant. And if we want to do that, it's just not possible to do that while having LLVM be doing our code generation because it's just not instant. (laughs) Yeah. You know, past like hello world sizes of applications at least. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Cool, man. We covered a lot of ground. Anything else we should make sure to talk about before we wrap up? There's more we could talk about, but I think this is solid for one podcast. We can do another one. Nice. The data analytics system has a JavaScript component. So there's TechML dataset DS on JavaScript that we use that that has an IoT application built on top of it. And that's cool because it uses the whole thing, right? It uses the data set on the phone and it sends the data set over the wire and then his backend is doing a bunch of analytics on it so he can show them to the users when they go to the browser. That's sweet. That is really what I had in mind because I like IoT a lot and that's one of the only applications that generates enough data that you actually need a real data analytic system on the phone. And we wrote it in terms of React Native Wow, I have lots of thoughts about all those things, but maybe, yeah, we should do another episode. <laughs> talk. About we should it. do another episode. This was fun. Yeah, likewise. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and looking forward to chatting again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you, by the way. Yeah, you too. Bye.